Welcome to yet another episode of the Reenactors Corner. Uh, in this episode, we're talking about recent events we've done because Corona is somewhat starting to ease up a little bit. And we've actually been out in the woods to do our weird little hobby. Hey everybody, this is Chris once again here with Lassa. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. How are you doing today, Lassa? I am doing uh, just fine. I'm happy we can uh, we can record again. It's been a while since the last time that we recorded, and it's good to hear your voice again. It's nice to be doing this again. It's always a pleasure. So this was kind of a uh, a fun episode, I think, because. Um, I just did my first reenactment event since the start of the like worldwide pandemic virus lockdowns, um, and I'm looking forward to talking about it and uh, sharing some information about what we did. Well, I'm happy that you have started um, that you started uh, reenacting as well. We had an event uh, a month or two ago. What um, what was the event that you guys did? So we have a rather large uh, wooden uh, area of uh, forest. That we um, that we use, and uh, the plan was to actually just uh, go up there and start our truck and drive it around for maintenance reasons. But uh, but everybody was so keen on an epi- on a on an event uh, after months of uh, nothing, so we just spontaneously uh, hosted an event like a week prior, and we ended up being ten guys at it. Which is uh, pretty much, especially for like a week's notice. So, uh, since it also was a week's notice, we were kind of not prepared. Um, my kit was everywhere in the apartment because there haven't been any events recently. So, um, we did a uh, late war, April 1945 uh, type scenario where we were reenacting remnants of the entire 9th Panzer Division. Uh, holding a small road outside uh, Köln, uh, Cologne, and um, yeah, we reenacted the uh, remnants of the Panzergrenadier uh, regiments, but also the Recon Battalion. So we had um, we had different uh, Waffenfarbe on the uh, shoulder boards and stuff like that, and we utilized the truck and we kept setting up positions and. Um, observation posts and we had uh, field cables uh, for the telephone going forth and back and we um, changed our position quite often as well to um, to kind of uh, simulate that we're on the retreat sounds like a great event it was a pretty good event i uh, if i say so myself the event that i did was a training event with my uh, soviet world war ii reenactment group that i'm a part of um and it was actually the first event that I have done with them, I think, since, I'm not sure, probably since 2018, maybe. Um, it was really cool. It's at the site in western Massachusetts where we have the bunkers that I've talked about before, 
or the bunker, I should say. We're, we're talking about building a second one, but as of now, it's just the one. And this event had been planned for a while. It was open to all of the local World War II Soviet reenactment groups. Um, and it was just planned to be like a, a training event. You know, everybody could get together and go over some basic skills. It's been a long time since any of us have done an event. Um, a lot of people, me included, have probably never really learned some of the basic uh, skills that a World War II Soviet soldier would have known. And so it was like a really good opportunity to get together and do that stuff. We wound up having 15 people there, which was a really cool turnout. I was really encouraged by it. Um, you know, especially knowing that there are still probably some people who are leery about getting together in groups of people right now, you know, and understandably so with everything that's going on. Um, and of course, it's hard to maintain hygiene and, and social distancing and that sort of thing when you're kind of uh, living outside with people for a weekend. Uh, I myself, I only went to this reenactment just for one day. I, it's close enough to my house that I just, I drove there and got there on Saturday morning and I left Saturday night and got to sleep in my own bed. Part of the reason for that was because uh, the weather forecast for this past weekend, it was supposed to be like a tropical storm. There was actually flood warnings that got issued. Um, oh, they were wow. talking about tremendous amounts of rain, inches of rain. And I, I actually thought it was pretty cool that the event was still supposed to happen, even though there was supposed to be bad weather. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, there have been times that there have been forecasts like that, that my German reenactment group that I'm in charge of has elected not to uh, do the event because it becomes really hard to reenact in that kind of uh, situation. But the Soviet group was like, it's going to be no problem, it's going to be fine, which I, I kind of, on some level, I kind of admire that. Um, you know, on another level, I worry that it might be irresponsible. But in any case, as it turned out, the weather forecast was totally wrong. It basically rained a little bit, I think, on Friday night. It rained some. And then Saturday, they said there was a 100% chance of rain in the afternoon, and it didn't rain at all. Like, not a drop of rain fell on the event. Uh, you know, well, oh, I was that's there weather all day. forecasts for you. You know, it's just... Um, so, the weather really affected this event a lot. First of all, the weather forecast made it hard for us to want to... I guess, do anything really serious or get like too far away from our base camp because we were all thinking that at any minute the sky was going to open up and we were going to get soaked to the skin. If we had known that it wasn't going to rain, we could have done things differently. Um, you know, we would have done things differently if we knew that it wasn't going to rain. And that's like, not the uh, first time like that's... Well, so I'll tell you like a little bit about what we did. We basically went over, as I mentioned, some basic skills. So there was uh, rifle drill and uh, the commands the in Russian language for like uh, formations, that kind of thing. And we went over some uh, other language stuff and we did some practicing like squad tactics. So basically... Um, how the Soviet squad would take different formations when going through terrain to go from like a, a line abreast to a, a, a marching column type of a thing. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how to move quietly through the woods, that kind of stuff. I thought it was really interesting. It was the first time I ever did anything like that. 
uh, with my Soviet group, and it was actually really interesting to see how much of it was so similar to the German way, which made it easy for me to understand. But there was like a lot planned for the event, and we didn't really do everything that was planned. Um, there was a, quite a bit of downtime. You know, it was, it was, it didn't have a very like regimented feel. It had a more laid back feel. And I think that was a little bit of, I don't know, my, my unit commander said that while we were doing it, he felt like we weren't kind of achieving exactly how he had envisioned that the event would be. But like I say, I think the weather forecast had to do with that because, um, we would probably have spent more time further away from our base camp practicing marching, practicing squad movement and formations. We would have covered more ground. But as I say, uh, no one wanted to be caught far from shelter in like what was predicted to be a really intense thunderstorm. So, so we didn't. Uh, another aspect of the weather that really affected the event was something that was definitely predictable and probably unavoidable, which is that it was super hot uh, because it's the month of July here and it's it's a really warm time of year. So um, the temperature was in the 90s Fahrenheit. It was really hot. I don't know. It was probably 35 degrees Celsius or something like that. And so, um, you know, people were... There's only so much running around that you can do before you're absolutely soaked in sweat and, you know, the amount of water that you need to drink in that kind of a setting is, is tremendous. And another aspect was that um, we were practicing squad movement in the woods because it was shady in the forest and much cooler there. But when you're trying to learn something like that for the first time, it's much easier to do it in like open ground, you know, like a field or even really probably like a parade ground where everybody can clearly see where everybody is. Um, but it was just so hot in the sun. It was, it was so, it was up very oppressive. The heat in the sun was very oppressive. And so, uh, so we just kind of stayed in the woods close to our kind of bunker area um, but I think it was still, like I say, even despite the, the weather-related aspects, it was super fun. And as I say, I learned a lot, and I think it's really useful. And it's important to do those kind of events, I think, for any reenactment group. Yeah, I think it sounds, um, I think that event sounds good, that you got to also um, practice on the simple stuff. I mean, you know, I think people who have listened to this podcast this won't come as a surprise, but my primary reenactment impression is of a World War II German soldier. And I also do reenactment as a World War II Soviet soldier, but it is a secondary impression. It's a side impression for me. Uh, I think it's an extremely fascinating impression. I'm really, really interested in the history. And, you know, I wish I had more time to commit to it, but the reality is is that I'm, I'm running a World War II German group that I'm committed to, and that really restricts the amount of time that I could spend on any other impression. And I do feel kind of, to be honest, a little bit of guilt about it because, um, look, I just, there's basic, basic, very basic stuff about Soviet World War II soldiers and history that is just, I have no idea about it. And, you know, I, I do worry that I'm not doing a great job with my impression, you know, because I just, the expertise isn't there. You know, my expertise in World War II Soviet is extremely shallow. 
Um, so, but you're educating yourself by doing it. I am learning by doing it, but I, I'm learning a lot by doing it. And I'm really grateful for uh, all of the more experienced and more knowledgeable people in my reenactment group who I've learned a lot from. Um, and yeah, it's definitely, I think, a good way to learn about this stuff, but it can't really be the only way, right? I mean, I think to have a really good impression, you have to do research yourself. You have to kind of be your own expert on aspects of your impression and the history you're portraying. I mean, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about here is that I can't, I can't read the Cyrillic alphabet. And that's like a real problem. I need to learn how to do that. But it's, it's not easy for me to do this. And I just haven't invested the time. So until I can yeah. even read, you know, I'm looking at stuff that I, not only do I not understand the language, I mean, I can't even read the alphabet. I don't even know what the word says. It's just a bunch of, a bunch of symbols I can't understand. You yeah, know, learning a different language isn't necessarily the hardest thing to do, but when it's a entirely different alphabet as well, it is it is it is it is pretty uh, pretty hard. You know, I learned I did learn to speak German. I I can speak it. Um I'm never going the chances of me learning to speak Russian is basic they're basically zero. I mean, I I think that reenactors should try to become familiar with the language of the impression that they're doing i mean i think theoretically i think the ideal should be that people should be conversational in the language that the person that they're portraying would have spoken but i'm never going to be able to do that in soviet it's just it's just too much you know and um these are really basic things and so i don't feel like just because I can't do it extremely well doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. I, you know, I'm trying to do the best I can with it, and you know, I am improving with it. Um, I, I, like I say, I will, I will learn Cyrillic at some point, but uh, it's the learning curve is extremely steep on this stuff, and I'm still doing research that relates to my German unit and my German impression, and you know that <laughs> that takes time too. You know, there's only so many hours in a day. Too, too much. Yeah. Um, but I think that generally speaking, I'm, I'm really glad that I went to this training event. This was the first training event that I ever went to with my, uh, Soviet unit. And, um, I really did learn a real lot. Um, and I just think training unit, training events in general, where you go over basic skills are so important for every reenactment group, even if the group is formed primarily of really experienced reenactors like my unit most of the guys in my group have been doing this for a while. We have, uh, we basically don't have anybody who's really new right now. Um, but we need to periodically go through and have these events where we do rifle drill and marching and practice getting in formation and using German commands, you know, go over some language stuff, maybe practice singing some songs that we know how to sing or learn some new songs. Um, because if you don't practice these skills, you become rusty with them. And something like rifle drill, it doesn't really matter how good you can do it because this isn't something that you do by yourself. This is something that you do as a group. So what matters is how well the group does it. You know, And you have to do these things together. You have to practice together as a group to be able to execute these movements in uh, you know, everybody doing it at the same time, right, simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, we uh, we uh, try to have a boot camp every year, 
but um, we often fail at that. Yeah, uh, no, my unit has the same thing. We'll we'll sometimes skip skip a year on a training event, and I'll tell you, you definitely notice the difference. You know, when you're at the field, when you're in the field. I mean, I am the guy who's in charge of my group in the field, generally speaking. And sometimes when we haven't done a training in a while or there hasn't been an event in a while, I am like finding myself, you know, be rusty, right? I'm like, the, the commands aren't coming right to my mind or, you know, exactly how everything should go is, uh, I maybe make a mistake given commands when we're getting information or something like that and it's embarrassing. Yeah. So uh, one yeah. thing we find that kind of works is that we try to um, have some sort of uh, close order drill, rifle drill, something like that um, at any event, uh, even if it's just uh, lining up and uh, just prior to leaving to the field, we uh, we try to do it to always, um, you know, stay warm with commands and movement and stuff. That's great. I think that's really, uh, really important for groups to try to do. We try to do it too, and we don't always succeed, but, um, you know, we certainly talk about it and the, the desire to do it is there. You know, we've talked about having some aspect even of training basically at like every event, even if it was like 15 minutes in the morning or something to go to some uh, area of forest where other re reenactment groups can't see and just go over some basic skill or, you know, make sure we uh, practice or learn something new, you know, for, so that everybody's impression gets a little bit better, that we become a little more well-trained every time. Of course, part of the reason why my German group does a rear area security troops impression is that these guys didn't have often very good training. So that, uh, we don't use that as an excuse, but look, the reality is, is that we're 21st century Americans doing a hobby on a weekend and, uh, we just don't have weeks or months of training like the real soldiers had. I mean, it's just not possible really for us to achieve their level of proficiency at this stuff. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's the, uh, the challenge because when it comes to close order drills, uh, soldiers, um, like in most modern armies, I'm not, it's probably more or less the same for World War II as well. They, ha they do like uh, two weeks of close order drills to get uh, good at it uh, during boot camp. But we have, like, a Saturday, <laughs> and that's it, really. Right. So, it's... No, uh, it's, we can't... It's to, to achieve their level of... The level of proficiency that the real soldiers had is probably not even realistic to hope for that. But I, I won't use that as an excuse not to try, you know? Oh, um, of course. I also find that because everybody uh, who's with us are here because they absolutely want to otherwise they wouldn't have spent money and such uh, they also uh we we do get good results in just uh, half a day's worth of uh, practicing it sure i think uh, motivation is also a good uh, a big part about it yeah right you're right like reenactment is not only all volunteer but it like requires extreme motivation because you have to buy all of this stuff and you know you got to really want to do it in order to uh to do it right I and mean, you can't you can't do it without it takes a lot of effort just to do it yeah reminds me of the time um in the belgian uh, belgium event we did a uh, we had a slow start with a day of uh, practicing 
um, basic uh, basic uh, practicing basically and we had marching as well and we were like that's cool 200 meters away from the uh, french border so <laughs> the guy who marched us which is nicholas my co-commander he's uh, he said like uh, ah fuck it and he marched us into france and back again <laughs> That's so amazing. That that's an awesome thing that uh, I'm so jealous about um, about European yeah, I mean, World War II reenacting is that you actually can represent the Wehrmacht and invade other countries. You know, <laughs> the Wehrmacht actually invaded. <laughs> the thing is, the permits didn't um, uh, span across the border, but um, who cares if you march like ten meters in? <laughs> I love it. You could have created an international incident. That would have been like international <laughs> news headlines. <laughs> German soldiers invade France through Belgium again. <laughs> um, yeah, another thing I wanted to mention about that reenactment that I did uh, last weekend with my Soviet group that's so different from how I approach the German side of things with the unit that I'm in charge of is that uh, I showed up at that event with just my uniform and gear. I didn't bring any food. I didn't actually bring any water, which I, I meant to, and I forgot to. Um, and I didn't actually, like, need food or water because the the group had arranged for there to be a communal hot meal that everybody enjoyed. Um, and the group has, like, big containers of water that uh, there's, like, water on the site that they can just fill up the big containers. So it's like... You know, the, the easiness of that, the convenience of that is just like, it's it's unbelievable. It's such an incredible difference from being in charge of my own group and planning events myself where I have to worry about food and water, all of this logistical stuff, you know, shelter, making sure that we have uh, everything that we need versus being a part, for me, in my Soviet impression, being a part of a larger group that is basically run entirely by uh, other people who are the leaders of that group. Um, I mean, that's just, it's awesome to be able to do that occasionally, you know? And I know that for them, uh, probably some of those guys are listening to this and, and maybe laughing because it's not easy for them, right? They have to be the people to bring the food. They have to be the people to make sure that the water containers are there and that the the tents or whatever get brought or, and that people can show up and have a place to sleep and a place to be, Um but, you know, not everybody in reenactment does that, right? That's part of the, the beauty of a reenactment group. You can have people within a group who are the responsible people who are tasked with these particular responsibilities. And then it, it actually facilitates other people who might not have the same level of dedication. They might not have the same level of time um, to participate in reenactments without having to worry about all of this other stuff that goes with it. You know, it is possible to go to reenactments and basically have stuff there for you if you're a member of a group that, that makes that available for you. Yeah, and that is probably as close to the uh, German military you can get. Right, or like any military, right? Because like it's just they give you, generally speaking, what you need every day. You know, and you have what's on your back and that's it. It's right, so it's like realistic in a way. Um, yeah. But obviously, you know, unlike in the real military, um, nobody is getting paid, right? So it's not like the, uh, 
It's not like the officers who are who are creating this nice situation for you are getting any kind of reward for it. They're doing it because they love reenacting, they love their unit, and they are willing to extend that to you. And, you know, you, you've got to be grateful for that kind of thing. I'm really grateful to the people that, that run my Soviet unit. All the events that I've ever done with this group, um, you know, I show up with next to nothing, and I just kind of use their stuff right i have my own kit i have everything that i need i have my my mess kit and my eating stuff and um you know my helmet and my rifle and everything but the 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 shelter and i mean i do have a like a plash that i could use as a shelter but um you know they basically provide everything that i really need and use even when we do like public events sometimes there'll be a breakfast and uh a dinner so you're basically taken care of for food for the entire day maybe you want to bring some fruit or some bread or uh, vegetables or something for yourself like a small meal or a snack but in general you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff I, I think it's really admirable when people run units like that so that the members of the unit can just um, kind of focus on their own impressions and they know that there's stuff that they'll be able to access at the event if they need it and of course Units like that have to collect dues. The, the dues money goes to pay for stuff like that. You know, it's not free. I think every unit should have unit dues. Yeah, it's a tough one for my German unit. I have always resisted having dues, and we've been around for, I don't know, five or six years now, and we've never... We, I think we did a one-time $25, like, voluntary donation. We asked people to donate $25 to create a unit fund... Um, Basically, it was initially to buy some tent stakes because our tent stakes mysterious, a bunch of our tent stakes mysteriously disappeared at an event that we did. Um, they were mine, actually. By, by ours, I mean mine. My tent stakes disappeared. And I didn't want to buy. I, they disappeared at an event that I wasn't at. You know, I loaned out the unit tent and, and the tent equipment. Oh. And then when it came back, there was not enough stakes in the box. I don't know exactly what happened. It doesn't matter. I just said, look, uh, you know, these were mine. Um, I don't want to buy new ones for them just to get used by the group and lost again. We need to come up with some money so that we can buy some stuff that's going to be unit property. And so that's what that's what that money went for. But I think we probably will have to institute some kind of dues. Maybe we have an annual planning meeting where we like make big changes once a year. It's in the, at the start of the year, and I think at the next year, at the start of the year, we're going to have like a, a vote about it. And I think people will vote to have unit dues because everybody knows that there's expenses um, associated with this stuff. I mean, just for example, our our website costs like fifty dollars a year, or forty dollars a year, or something like that. You know, that's yeah. money that I don't mind spending that money so that we have this kind of outpost on the internet that people can use to contact us, but. You know, it's an expense, and then of course, uh, the we we often have food where somebody will bring all the food, and then everybody else is supposed to kick in money. But maybe you just forget to collect the money, and you know it's becoming increasingly common that nobody has cash on them, and so it's like, all right, well, um, tell you what, I'll like give you a beer instead of the five bucks or whatever, and it's like you wind up losing money, right? Yeah, um, the uh, just having unit uses um, it saves a lot of hassle like that. 
we've always had unit use and that's for multitude of stuff uh, be it uh, the truck insurance for the truck um, fuel for the truck the website uh, food at events because sometimes we do you uh, uh, make food for the guys instead of them bringing their own um, also uh, various equipment and maintenance of said equipment and etc etc so we have uh, we have unit use that's cool I also think there is like a value in there's another value in unit dues where you basically by paying the dues you're like expressing your commitment to something and yeah you know if you don't have the commitment required to pay some reasonable amount of dues for your membership in an organization you know maybe it's better not to ha- not to have you in this organization you know kind of yeah and i mean 25 dollars a year that's that's nothing no, it isn't. It isn't a lot of money compared to how much money reenactment kit costs. I mean, twenty-five dollars is. Look, I've, I've I've done the math on this, and it's it's hard for me to go to really any kind of event for less than like a hundred bucks, you know. And so, if if you're not willing to take some of what you would spend just to attend an event and throw that to your unit, so that they're able to have an operational fund to do things that any unit needs to do, it's like. It's also that um, spare time activities of um, any organization or whatever, it costs money. Here in Norway, just having your kid at a uh, soccer practice uh, is like $300 a year or something. Sure, it's the same here. So what does it matter if it's $30 a year? That's that's literally nothing. I love reenacting. I love reenactors, but like uh, there is this, there is like a weird view of money. I feel like within the reenactment hobby, where um, if an event costs fifty dollars to attend and is an outdoor event where you can arrive on Wednesday and stay until Sunday, if that event costs fifty bucks, people complain. Costs too much. Why does it cost fifty dollars? You know, fifty dollars—that's ridiculous. This event uh, twenty years ago, this event cost thirty-five dollars, and now it's fifty dollars. This is outrageous. And it's like, well, why don't you take a look at how much it would cost just to rent a spot at a campground for a weekend? You know, it's... Yeah, exactly. That'd be the same, if not more. It'd be the same, if not more. And, and you know, with regard to how much events used to cost, it's like $35 in, in 2000 is the equivalent to $50 today just with inflation. You know, prices go up. Money, the value of money has changed. And I don't know, it's just like whether an event costs 25 or $50, I think shouldn't be like a, a stumbling block. Now, I understand if people, if people feel like other reenactors are like profiting off of them, right? I can understand that there's some like bitterness that can form there, but it, it, that's generally not the case at all. It's, it's not like anybody's really making any money on this stuff. And if, if a reenactment group winds up with a relatively, you know, small amount of money left over at the end that they can use for their own projects to repay themselves for the effort that they put into hosting an event, I think that's should be fine. Everybody should understand that that's fine. You know, yeah, landowners the, um, want money event, sometimes. Event costs usually just cover the actual cost of it, and any, and they don't take any payment in form of. Uh, of hours they uh, spend on the uh, on the event. 
That's so also like if my there's experience. $20 left, then who actually cares? Well, that's it. I mean, even if it was like, look, if I, if I went to an event and it cost $30, or let's say it cost $50, right? If I went to an event where I could get there on Thursday, the event cost $50, I got a couple of meals maybe, um, there was a, a, like a bathroom there that I could use so that I didn't have to shit in the woods... And maybe firewood pr- was provided or something. I mean, I think that would be that would be great. And I don't think that people should complain about that kind of thing. I mean, firewood costs money. It costs money to be able to supply people at the event with water. You know, porta potties. This stuff all these costs all add up. Plus the cost of insurance that a lot of events have to carry. Um, and and a lot of times there is a fee for the use of the property as well. I mean, these things cost money to do. Sure, you can go and go into your own backyard with your friend and uh, take a picture of yourself for Instagram, but that's that's not like a reenactment event. If you really want to do an event, there's cost. There's going to be costs associated with it, and you know there's going to be there's going to be an event fee. Then I don't think it's anything worth complaining about. Yeah, I I totally agree. I also can't help but notice that like a lot of the people that complain about. Uh, reenactment event costs being too high they like have like more helmets than they can ever use right or they like have like (laughs) you know they'll spend a tremendous amount of money on some kind of custom made pair of socks or something you know and it's just like i know you're not starving to death uh, for lack of money over there you know yeah but then it then it's like they prioritize the materialistic aspect of reenactment instead of the experiences of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, look, I, I'm sure that I've complained about event costs at times in the past. You know, there have been events. I can, I'm thinking of some that happened a long time ago where you would pay 25 bucks to go to an event that was on something that was maybe like public land or owned by a reenactor and there were no porta potties and no food was provided and you know there was no insurance and there was absolutely nothing that was provided at all and you know if if um 100 people went to that event that's two thousand five hundred dollars and it's like all right i understand somebody is like making a bunch of money off of hosting this event you know and i my feelings about that are are kind of mixed but you know on the other hand what's 25 bucks right i mean i i think we should I mean, I, I don't know, I guess complaining about $25, the cost of $25, when you look at it in comparison to the overall cost of what it costs to be a reenactor, it shouldn't be an issue. You know, what's 25 bucks? Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, but the dues, you know, if we, if we choose to do dues for my reenactment group, it's, it's not going to be a lot of money. And the fact is somebody else is going to have to be the treasurer of my reenactment group and maintain the fund and pay the people money for the things that we approve spending money on because um, I don't have time to keep track of that stuff. And I also, I'm just extremely terrible with money and money just flows through my hands. And I would just, I'm sure I would just squander <laughs> all the unit money on a typewriter or some, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I can't be trusted with money, honestly. <laughs> the way so we do it money. is that since our reenactment unit is a registered legal entity, we actually have our own, very own uh, bank account that is registered on the unit. Uh, so it makes it uh, very safe that the money actually is the unit's money and not like Bill's money. Um, That's cool. And 
I've talked about the annual meeting we have, and there we also go through all the um, all the costs and what the unit has spent money on and where it has gotten money from, etc., etc. So it's a very transparent system. Nice. Yeah, it should be that way. You know, and that's that's how we'll have to do it too. Is the person who's in charge of the money? It's going to have to be, you know, accountable for maintaining a record of how much we have and what it gets spent on, so that everybody is, you know, aware of exactly, exactly what what happens with all their money. You know, it's going to be everybody's money. So, yeah, and it's also a problem, as you say, that if uh, if a "Quote unquote random person takes uh, takes the responsibility of uh, the money, then um, it can get used on something else as well. And if there's no record of that money being the unit's money, then you basically the money's the money's gone. Yeah, that that can engender a lot of bitterness and resentment and bad feelings and make enemies and stuff really quickly once you start bringing money disputes into it. Exactly, and that's um, that's a very slippery slope to go." Now, Lasse, before we started recording, you were saying that you did some cool thing uh, last weekend as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if I mentioned it on the podcast, but we, we uh, have a coastal fort we usually go to, where we had a few events uh, earlier and a few public display events that has been rather unique. Um, but um, we've been, for a year or two, been talking about taking over a, um, an original uh, building Atifort, which is a German building from from the war, uh, which is uh, hasn't been used since the army left it in the early 90s, and it's basically falling apart, so it needs a good restoration and overhaul job. But um, the fort has the funds for it, so we have um, actually... Uh, last week and started the uh, restoration job of the building and That's um, so cool. it's not like the biggest building it's a one floor building and um, has like three no two big rooms and two three smaller ones we're probably we're consider we we want to turn it into a barracks building it was um, it was some sort of workshop originally but uh, we're considering making a barracks building and probably putting up some uh, some walls on the inside to further divide the big rooms. But we're still we're still looking into the how and why and when, because uh, currently we just have to um, complete the exterior of the building. Uh, some of the walls have um, have quite a lot of rot in them, so there's some wood that needs to be replaced and we also scraped off all paint and started uh, almost done repainting the uh, exterior walls of it and cleaning a bit around it and it, it's quite a lot of work but it's uh, really showing off now that's awesome that sounds like an incredible project I'm really jealous what you guys have <laughs> access to over there yeah it's great uh we're also for a long time been discussing the colors because what color is a uh, German World War II uh, barracks? I have no but, idea. Yeah, that, that's what we thought too. But we found out that um, uh, at the at that coastal fort, the buildings were painted red and uh, white, and that is to um, because all 
all barns in Norway are painted red and white. So they wanted to have a color that um, didn't uh, stick out for uh, for uh, bomber planes or planes, enemy planes in general. So they were painted red and white to That's really cool. blend in. I mean, to be able to like reenact in a a building that was used by German soldiers in World War II is just so cool. Yeah, and um, yeah, the fort is also unique because it's the um, that fort is the first um, land-based position to fire upon the invading German uh, um, force as well. That's really cool. A lot of history there. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. We used to do an event that was at a coastal fort here in Massachusetts, and they don't have that event anymore, and I really miss it. I think there's something, uh, you know, so inherently zony about a coastal fortification. It's just like, you know, this kind of military fortress. It's purpose-built, um, and they, they have kind of a timeless sort of a look, right? I mean, the whether a lot of these fortifications were used... Um, for centuries, uh, you know, with some changes, and even the ones that were built out of concrete during World War II often don't look so wildly dissimilar from the ones that were made out of uh, brick or granite in, like, other centuries, right? So, uh, no, I just think those kind of sites are absolutely perfect for events. I think you can get a really cool kind of time travel feel doing an event at a site like that. Yeah. Uh, we we have had events at the coastal fort before, but it has been um, has been like boot camp style events and stuff. But um, we haven't had a zony place to sleep. Um, so, but um, when this barrack building is getting up and done and ready to use, then uh, we will have a zony place to sleep, and we hope to um, we hope to host a uh, larger event as well. Or international uh, participants too and it would be cool if you could come too I will go uh, if they will allow Americans to travel to Europe again I would I would probably go to something like that I've been I, you know usually I'm really poor uh, but I've become tremendously wealthy because uh, everything's been closed and I haven't been spending any money going out so now I don't know, now <laughs> I can actually talk about traveling of course ironic, awesome. now that I, I could theoretically travel I'm like I'm like I can't get on a plane right or banned from from Europe yeah. for the time being, so I don't know. I mean, hopefully the event won't be in the closest foreseeable future, so hopefully Corona will settle down a bit. I would love to do that. I would love to see the coast in Norway. I'm sure it's really beautiful. All right, good. Well, kind of a little bit of a shorter episode this time, I guess, but uh, next time we'll come back with like an actual uh, topic to discuss. I've got, we got a lot of ideas in mind. We've had some great suggestions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's no shortage but it's good to uh, take an episode and just uh, catch up on the um, events we've been doing especially since we haven't had events in like what feels like millions of years I agree it's awesome to be able to have like current events to talk about again yeah and I'm going to be returning to like a regular monthly schedule of reenactments again I think going forward so uh, lots of stuff that I'm working on that I'm excited about for the coming weeks and months I'm very happy to hear that All right, Lassa and everybody, uh, stay safe out there. And uh, until next time, I will see you in the field. I'll see you in the field, Chris. And as always, thank you so much to all our patrons for your uh, fantastic uh, support. (laughs) I I know we say this a lot, but it means a lot. Uh, And uh, thanks again to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for uh, editing this podcast.